0: The Christianity that I learned, that is the theological system I learned from the very beginning, was Acts 28 dispensationalism. It's not a widespread
1: view of Scripture, um, late Acts dispensationalism.
0: Well, well, the reason I'm smiling and laughing, too, is because when I think about the fact that I came, that I began in a denomination in which there are only two churches in the Western world. And I've come all the way to becoming Catholic. I mean, it's like the the entire spectrum is in there, and I could talk about it for hours and hours and hours. But yeah, I was a late-acts dispensationalist, and I remember feeling just so incredibly blessed that the Lord had just led me providentially into a Bible study where I was learning the truth that only two churches in the entire Western world do. (music)
1: Well, hello and welcome to another Wind Him Up and Let Him Go episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I will be winding up Ken and letting him go. We're just going to see where things end up. Uh, we've been going through yep. the story of how Ken came to Christ and what things look like as he prefer- prepared for ministry and much, much more in this series we call On the Journey. Uh, it's a production of the Coming Home Network. Come visit us at chnetwork.org. Uh, That's chnetwork.org. Lots and lots of resources, including all the previous episodes of On the Journey. And then, of course, if you're someone who is uh, interested in the Catholic faith in any way and wants to sort through it, um, talk through it with a bunch of people who have been there and done that, come over to community.chnetwork.org. Ken, uh, we're following the pattern of our Coming Home Network retreats and, you know, some of the ways that we actually do the sessions and how those are structured when people you know, come to our Coming yeah. Home Network retreats. And um, I know that we start with a major question that we're about to get to today because when we left off with you, you were at Fuller Seminary hanging out with hyper-Calvinist Scott Hahn and uh, that's where you were. You were not at all, when we left off, open to the Catholic faith.
0: No, in fact, you mentioned the retreats. Uh, at... At our Coming Home Network retreats, we work through a series of questions in the various sessions. And the first real question that we tackle is the question what is it that opened your mind? What is it that first happened in your life that opened your mind to the idea that that the Catholic Church might have something to say? And I've actually taken two weeks and I'm taking today. So I'm actually taking three episodes to address that question because I wanted to go back and, for the first time, I guess, just tell the story of my life and uh my my spiritual life how i came to the lord and what happened after that and so i've kind of elongated that section so this is a prolix augmentation of a of what could i'm just assuming that if you end
1: up with more episodes than me when you tell your story because i cut it at five it's either because you're a lot older than me or because you were a more miserable sinner than i was (laughs) or possibly both or maybe I'm both. older
0: than you, and maybe I'm more self-absorbed, and maybe I'm more detail-oriented. I don't know. It could be a combination of a lot of things. But anyway, yeah, I'm telling my story. And when I left off last time, I was at Fuller Theological Seminary. Okay, so let me move forward from there. Um, I graduated from Fuller with my master's degree. Uh, the, the program I took was called Pre-Doctoral Studies in Theology. In 1983, which, were you alive then? Were you born?
1: I was. I was uh, four where. years old.
0: I was four okay. years old, Ken. Give me some credit. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> um, 1983, I was enrolled in a doctoral program at Claremont Graduate School, and Teen and I moved back to Riverside, the city in which we grew up. It's about 50 miles due east of Los Angeles. Um, our first child, a daughter named Blythe, had been born and uh, Tina's mother was alone, my mother was alone, and so we wanted to be closer to them. So we moved back to Riverside, and we uh, uh, bought a little house there, thanks to Tina's mother giving us the down payment. And uh, we both got jobs waiting tables. This is what we had done when I was in seminary quite a bit, and, and that, uh, this is what we did. We got jobs waiting tables. Now, I do want to stop there just, just quickly, Matt. And, you know, telling this story again has made me sit and think really hard about the question, was there anything that had happened to this point that softened me to a more Catholic view of the world or to the Catholic church? And the answer I'd have to give at this point is, is basically no. Um, I was committed to the Puritans. Um, I was in the, the Puritan Calvinist, ba- uh, but Baptist version, um, I'd read Lorraine Bettner's infamous book, Catholicism, and essentially agreed with everything in it. I'd read... By the way, for those, of who,
1: who, those who have not read Bettner, he ain't no friend of Rome. No, um. no,
0: no, very negative, very negative. And um, even more negative was Hislop's famous book, The Two Babylons, in which mm-hmm. he attempts to prove that the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon and uh, and and such. So I had read these books... I had listened to what the Puritans had to say. They were no friend of Catholicism. They hated Catholicism. I you know, I knew that Catholicism was heretical, although it wasn't a conversation that I had and it wasn't something I really thought a lot about. Um, if anything was softening me up to this time, that is my, my early Christian years and then going to Bible college and then going to Fuller Seminary, if there was anything that was softening me it's only something that I could see looking back after becoming Catholic um, because it, because I wasn't conscious of it but, it, but it might have been just a kind of a growing subliminal sense that Bible-only Christianity had its problems because I had begun my Christian life as a radical dispensationalist in a totally non-denominational Bible-only kind of situation in Southern California. When you say
1: dispensationalist... Like oh, how wait. crazy, I don't want to go down this road, yeah, but were yeah. you like a, were you like a? we don't have to listen to every, anything up until the New Testament? Or were you one of those people who said, we didn't have to listen to anything in the New Testament up until Pentecost? Or were you one of those <laughs> mid-Acts dispensationalists? Because dispensationalism okay. very often can be like, well, one covenant blows out another covenant. And there's a lot of divisions that have come through in that way. Were you into all that or were you just like,
0: yeah, I am. I, um, I, I have thought really hard that I would avoid going going into this, and I will That's avoid okay. going into it in a detailed way. It, Just say it, pass. Say, Just
1: say pass, and we'll move on.
0: N- no, I don't want to pass. I want to say something about it. Okay, basic, your garden variety dispensationalism, which is very prominent in Southern California evangelical world, Calvary Chapel, all you know, churches of all kinds says that the church age begins at Pentecost with Acts chapter 2. And this is what pertains to us. Um, Then there are the more radical mid-Acts dispensationalists who say, no, the church age doesn't really begin until the revelation of the mystery is given to Paul after his conversion. So they would say the church age actually begins around acts nine through 13 sometime around there and therefore it's only the writings from that period on that actually apply to the church are binding any
1: are binding yeah, yeah
0: or, or any writings before that uh, apply more to the jewish uh, new covenant the kingdom age but anyway i, I don't want to explain what that all means, there's late
1: acts dispensationalists too so i mean but we could go out we could go down that you know, road all day so we're not going to need to do that i don't think
0: you're a very bright young man. Yes, there is a there is another version, even more radical, that says that the church age doesn't... That Paul did not receive the revelation of the mystery until he was in prison in Rome, and it's Acts 28 dispensationalism. That was the variety that I knew. Wait, okay, you so, were a late Acts? I thought you were a mid-Acts. Well, he, he, I, I don't want to go into it, but here it is. Ken, I feel like I don't when know I you. came, When I came to faith in Christ, I was at a home Bible study that that took place on Tuesday nights. And it was just a small group, and this group was led by a gentleman that was a late Acts dispensationalist. And so the Christianity that I learned, th- that is the theological system I learned from the very beginning was Acts 28 dispensationalism. But there were no Acts 28 churches around. In fact, if I remember correctly, there were only two in, um, in the Western world, I mean, at least there were, there were only two at the time. I think one in England, one in the United States. It's not a widespread
1: and, view of scripture, um, Late I, Acts Dispensationalism. I, I,
0: well, well, the reason I'm smiling and laughing, too, is because w- when I think about the fact that I came, that I began in a denomination in which there are only two churches in the Western world and I've come all the way to becoming Catholic. I mean, it's like the the entire spectrum is in there, and I could talk about it for hours and hours and hours. But yeah, I was a late Acts dispensationalist, and I remember feeling just so incredibly blessed that the Lord had just led me providentially into a Bible study where I was learning the truth that only two churches in the entire Western world do. Okay? Now, but because there were no Acts 28 dispensationalist churches we attended a mid-acts dispensationalist church small church called community bible well church, you get what you near, can take nearby. you know yeah where the pastor was a mid-acts dispensationalist but now i mean pr- a practical outcome late acts dispensationalists didn't believe that baptism applied to the church and didn't believe that the lord's supper did so we didn't have baptism or the lord's supper the mid-acts people said baptism well i, I, I I don't want to state that because I've kind of forgotten the position now, so I don't want to say what they what they said. But anyway, that's why I went to a mid-acts dispensationalist Bible college because my pastor was mid-acts. But anyway, enough dispensationalism. The point that I was making was I began my Christian life with a total sola scriptura. We go, we look at the Bible, we study the Bible, we decide what we think it's teaching, and feeling incredibly blessed that I had just stumbled into the to a to the to the right, you know, uh, denomination, to the truth that only a few people, a handful of people in the world knew. Okay. And then during my time at Bible college, I came to reject not only late acts dispensationalism, but dispensationalism as a system of thought, which I, I think I'll come back to later. And I'd become a more classic Protestant, um in the in the model of John Calvin or or Martin Luther or you know, um, Martin Buer some of the other reformers. And then I drifted more into the Puritan camp. Okay. And then I'd gone to a, sem- to an international seminary where I was studying side by side with people who were Methodists and people who were Lutherans and Presbyterians and Nazarenes and Pentecostals and Anglicans and really every variety of Protestantism under the sun. And so if there was anything happening to me, I, I'm just saying that looking back, maybe subliminally, I was beginning to wonder about this whole idea that we just study the Bible and figure out what we think it's teaching. Because I knew there were people smart as I was, smarter than I was at seminary, that had come to radically different points of view on so many things. So I might have been becoming kind of rattled on that, but that was not even conscious. Even when my professor, as I described last week, um, began poking holes in the Protestant doctrine of justification by, by faith alone. And I began to believe that what he was saying was true. Even then I didn't think of myself as departing from a basic Protestant worldview. Okay. Let me go forward with the story though. I graduate in 83. We moved back to Riverside and Tina and I began attending a little church that reminded me very much of the early Anabaptists at the time of the reformation. They were actually a brethren in Christ church very small congregation that had a very much Catholic ambiance sort of mixed in with what they did. Okay. Um, we met in a beautiful little room at a, at a local Anglican church, Episcopal church where there was a fireplace in the background. They liked to light candles. We had dim lighting, very dim lighting. Um, the worship was very, very simple. Um, I began to play the guitar and uh, with another gentleman in the, in the church and lead worship. We sang a lot of songs by John Michael Talbot, and I remember when I first heard that, I, I, I remember just sort of erupting quickly, like, isn't that guy a, isn't he a Catholic? But when I listened to the songs, you know, they were very much just based on the Psalms, based on passages from the Gospels, and I really liked the music. So I found myself playing the guitar and leading and singing worship there. Um, in this church that was Baptist in its theology, they were actually a Brethren in Christ church, but very very much tended toward this kind of Catholic ambiance, not just in the music, but I remember the favorite movie that was being watched by everyone in the church was Brother, Son, Sister Moon. Have you ever seen that one? About yeah, it's Saint the—
1: The St. Francis is the hippie version of St. Francis. Yeah, the total
0: hippie, Franco Zeffirelli hippie version of St. Francis. And everyone was watching it. Everyone thought it was just the coolest thing on earth, you know. And then uh, a book we were all reading was a book by Richard Foster called Celebration of Discipline, which you're aware of that book, right?
1: Well, it it plays an interesting role in my own journey that we didn't even get to um, that. How's that? Well among other things, it was kind of like the only thing that anybody in my Protestant world knew of as a reference for like what fasting might possibly look like Mm -hmm. because fasting wasn't something we ever talked about. But also I can't remember if it was foster or somebody else, but there was like a, an understanding. I think he was a gateway drug to John of the cross Uh, (laughs) for some people, Uh, (laughs) partly because, and um, I've discussed this at, at length in other places, but we were in a, uh, a world in my evangelicalism that that was chasing, you know, the next big conversion experience, the next big like uh, enthusiastic move mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit in our people. And what do you do when that doesn't happen? Even though the, although you're praying all the right prayers, um, well, then you're in a dark night of the soul, right? Then you got to mm-hmm. figure out well, mm-hmm. what are the spiritual disciplines that we got to do to maintain our faith. Mm-hmm if we're not getting all these consolations left and right. So yeah, Foster was big in my world.
0: Yeah, Fa- uh, Foster's book at the time, and I'm talking 1983, 84, 85, um, it was almost a kind of a cult classic among the people that I knew. Um, mm-hmm. because It, it certainly it, it was, was among
1: my Nazarene group uh, that I was yeah,
0: in. Yeah, it was our first real serious taste of the idea of spiritual disciplines. There was a chapter on fasting, on the spiritual discipline of solitude, of silence, of prayer, of meditation, on and on. And the thing is, it had this Catholic feel as well, because when you read Foster, you find that he's quoting extensively from Thomas Merton, he's quoting from St. John of the Cross, he's uh, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Teresa of Avila. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a book written by an evangelical, for an evangelical audience, that brings the Catholic conception of the spiritual life into the Protestant world. And so What was uh, Foster, said, was he like a Quaker or something? I don't remember. But you're right, kind of a gateway <laughs> drug to Catholic spirituality. And so, anyway, the point that I'm making is I'm attending this little church that is Baptist in its theology, basically. It's Brethren of Christ. But where we're singing John Michael Talbot We're watching brother, son, sister, moon. We're reading the celebration of discipline, and I'm being exposed to these Catholic saints of old and people that actually go back beyond historically, you know, the 16th century and the Reformation. So I can see that this is beginning to affect me, maybe on an emotional or an aesthetical level. And then it got more intense because one of the guys in the church who worked with me waiting tables invited me one night he said hey would you like to go to a on a spiritual retreat with me he said there's this monastery in the high desert saint andrew's abbey a benedictine monastery and he says it's really lovely um i'm going to go out there you want to go you want to go with me and so i said yes and so now here i am this puritan who um who would say that catholicism is nuts and that catholic theology is totally heretical and now I'm driving out through the high desert of Southern California to go to a Benedictine monastery. And, you know, all I can say, Matt, is that I don't remember driving out there thinking, you know, what the hell are you doing going <laughs> going to a Catholic monastery? I don't remember that. But what I remember is that it, it had a really profound effect on me. That is, I loved being there. Um, I remember several things. There was this beautiful grove of poplar trees that had been planted by Father Eleutherius like 40 years before or something with these beautiful trees that had grown up. And I, I, I took my Bible and, I was, and my guitar and I was sitting out there and reading, playing my guitar. I remember how we ate our meals with the monks, which was just a brand new thing for me sitting in this kind of cafeteria with all these monks coming, sitting by me and serving. Um, I met Brother Peter there. Um, Brother Peter, was a Chinese monk who had just recently been released from 26 or 26 or 27 years of imprisonment in China for his faith. Uh, his, his right hand was what was deformed, like curled up and deformed from the torture he had gone through and, and I, I, I believe just being chained with a heavy iron manacle for a long time. And he had been released and he had come back to, to uh, the place that was his home, uh, the monastery there. And uh, he would come around and serve us, you know, our meals. And I do remember thinking, you know, man, this guy sure seems like he's a Christian. You know, I don't know about Catholics in general, but he seems like he's a Christian. What's and funny, then,
1: uh, Ken, is that yeah. you're talking about this. It's it's taking me back to, you know, when I was kind of disaffected with um, mm-hmm. with evangelical Christianity. One of the things I got involved in. Uh, was a reading group and we were reading a lot of Thomas Merton. And because I was in central Kentucky, um, we had access to the Trappist monastery where Merton was, the Abbey of Gethsemane, mm-hmm. and going out there just a couple times and being like, what is this world? Like, I <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I feel like I've stepped out of my own century by a lot. Uh, yeah. and, and yet these people are more, gr- like, you would think, you know, the that, you know, if you watch enough Monty Python, that these monks are the people who are like out of touch, just whacking themselves in the head with books and stuff. And I'm like, something about these guys, these guys are more grounded than anything that's going on out there. Like, they're just like rooted and like solidly. Like, they get up in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. they pray the Psalms and they do their mm-hmm. thing. They go work, they go pray. I'm like, what have I wandered into? <laughs> you know, it was like, trying to figure out how to make well, sense of what that was.
0: This is, this is the experience I'm describing. Yeah, I'm sitting in my little room where the walls are bare except a, a crucifix over the bed. Mm-hmm. Hearing those bells ring five, six times a day. I mean, it's dark outside and the bell's ringing. And, and all these monks are just silently streaming into this little, you know, rustic, beautiful old chapel, wood and brick to chant the Psalms. And, and I learned that they, they end up chanting through the entire book of Psalms about every two weeks, you know, as they, as they, as they do what they do. And so I was in there with them. I was joining with them in this and, and, and I was really moved by it. I was, I, I was moved by the precision too. You know, I, I remember thinking these guys even ring the bell as though God cares about it as though God is listening and cares. You know what I'm saying? How they ring it in an exact way. Then they all go into the chapel. And they, bottom line is that this was a brand new experience for me, and and I found it really uh, moving, and I loved being there. In fact, for years after this this experience, I would go back out to St. Andrew's Abbey for for um, spiritual retreats. For years after I became a pastor and and all that, and you know, I'm even though I was known in seminary and beyond as kind of a th- uh, theologian type as an academic type, you know, I guess I, my mind was just sort of bifurcated into two pieces because I don't remember ever saying to myself, what are you doing going out to this monastery? These guys are Catholics. These guys are heretics. If you had pushed me up against a wall and said, what do you think of Catholic theology? I would have said, Oh, it's crazy. They're nuts. But, um, on an experiential level, I just felt at home. I felt at, that this was something really good. Okay, now I need to fly um, for And just, I just to, I to, say just to okay, just to put a ahead. pause
1: on <laughs> on that, and just say, like, I had the same a similar kind of experience, but I wouldn't have been able to do that if somebody had said, "Why don't you come to like this Lutheran prayer service or this Presbyterian prayer?" Ser-. Like, I would have been able to mm-hmm, clearly mm-hmm. make that distinction in my mind, but for some reason I couldn't do it. I, I had that same exact experience at the monastery. At
0: Yosemite, that's great. Yeah. Uh, oh okay, I need to burn forward because I know where I've got to go and I'm realizing that I'm not there. Okay, so during this time, I was getting tired of reading all the time, tired of studying all the time. I was starting to launch into doctoral work and it was just, you know, and I found myself really wanting to be involved in practical ministry. Maybe maybe our experience at the Little Brethren Church was doing that to me, but I wanted to be in ministry. And so one day I go into our bedroom and I grab the phone book, Okay, you remember such a thing as a phone book? Big fat right. book?
1: Give me some credit, man. I was alive in 1983, <laughs> too. I mean,
0: I'm like, come on, man. Well, well on. I don't know when these things changed. I can't remember. It's been, it's been so long ago. Okay, listen. I opened the phone book, and I opened it to Baptist churches in Riverside, and I just began to run my finger down the page. And my finger stopped on First Baptist Church of Riverside. And the reason my finger stopped there is because it was the it was in bold. The ad was in bold. And so I, I always like to take an opportunity to, to say to anyone who's wanting to advertise, it's, it's worth the extra 50 cents on eBay or whatever it is. It's worth it to put it in bold because my fingers stopped on that church because it was in bold. And I called them on the phone. And, and Matt, no kidding, this is exactly what I said to the lady that answered the phone. I said, hello, my name is Ken Hensley. I said, I'm a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. I live here in the area. And I was just wondering, um, how would I go about finding churches that might need a pastor? <laughs> and, um, now see th- this will sound crazy to anyone from one of the higher denominations, you know, where, where that's not how you become a pastor. You know, that, you know, you work with your church, your church selects you, your church sends you to seminary and all that. But no, I just went completely independently to seminary and in the world in which I ran, you know, um, you could become a, if a church wants to hire you as a pastor, you're a pastor. That's all there is to it. So anyway, that's, that's what I said to her. And lo and behold, she says just a minute and she gets off the phone and the, the senior pastor of the church answers the phone. And, uh, and I said the same thing to him. I repeated, I mean, almost verbatim the same words. Well, it, it turns out that he had just decided to begin looking for a youth pastor, an associate pastor, and he invited me down to talk with him. So I, I remember I went down to the church. I brought my guitar. He talked to me some. He wanted to hear me uh, sing a song, you know, so I played the guitar and sang a worship song. I don't think it was a John Michael Talbot song, but, um. and he hired me. That's how I became a pastor. Okay. I was just, I was just hired. Anyway, I can move through this rather quickly because I'll be coming back to things, but so, so in the end, I was an associate pastor over junior high, senior high, and college groups for about three and a half years, and then I was invited to come and candidate at a church in the LA area um, to become their senior pastor. Um, I candidated for them; they voted, and uh, uh, you know I was chosen. So I was voted in. You know the the white smoke went out through the through the roof of the church. The
1: conclave. The yeah, elected Ken I, as pastor.
0: Yeah, and I became a, a senior pastor, and you um, came out, out to the, the big process. window of the
1: church and said Abemus Kinham.
0: <laughs> that doesn't sound very good. It Kinnum. doesn't really work.
1: Doesn't work very no, it doesn't, well. does Abemus right. Hensley.
0: That doesn't sound good either. Doesn't
1: work really well either.
0: Doesn't no does, doesn't fly. This doesn't. So, I was ordained and I became a pastor. Okay, so now. This launches me really into 11 years as a pastor, three and a half years in, um, as an associate pastor in Riverside, and then about eight years as senior pastor in the Glendale area near Los Angeles. And during that time, Matt, there are always struggles, and there were a lot of struggles. But during that time, I would say it was a, the best time that we had had for my family, um our son Kenny was born <laughs> I'm not very creative I spent like 1 minute trying to think of a name for him um we had great friends at that church spiritually the church was heaven I mean they actually wanted me as their pastor to make they wanted to make sure that I spent a lot of time in reading and prayer and with my family so they didn't want me coming to meetings six nights a week like some pastors wind up doing um, i was given one month paid vacation every year and that's kind of typical i found the reason is that pastors are always working on sunday and on call all the time and so the church gave gave us a month so we would hop into our van and we would drive around the country camping and visiting historical sites i mean it was really a great time um, my paycheck magically appeared every two weeks in the box in the mailbox I was never going to be rich, but but I was secure. I, I think I could have stayed there my entire life. I loved the church. The church loved me, loved our family. Things were going really good in a way, in in most ways. And then the bomb dropped. Then the bomb happened. And that's what I want to come to here talk about for a few minutes. One night, a gentleman in my church came to me after the Sunday evening service and he said, pastor Ken, can we talk? And I said, yes. And we went downstairs. I remember we were standing in the youth room when he said to me, he said, look, my, my wife is Filipino and she's, she was born and raised Catholic. She doesn't care anything about God and she won't come to church. And then she says to me, if I ever go back to church, it'll have to be the Catholic church. And, and this is just driving him crazy. And so he was kind of an on-fire baptist and he became, came uh, through this situation with his wife he was becoming an on-fire anti-catholic and he had begun to debate with catholic answers an apologetics organization down in San Diego and he says no hey, no just for the timeline
1: yeah. of this thing catholic answers is not some like ubiquitous like global apostolate at this point right this no. is like the, barely is really out like, of Carl 1990- Keating's van right
0: this would be 1993 is very early. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was out of Carl Keating's van. Patrick Madrid was working for them at the time, but I haven't it's gone back to, to look it up, but it's pretty early on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so he says to me, I've been debating with these people at this organization called Catholic Answers. They've sent me a lot of material. A lot of it's over my head. Pastor Ken, would you look at this material and show me where the Catholics are wrong? And then he said, and, here, and here, here was the bomb or the beginnings of the bomb. Then he said, and they sent me a series of tapes by somebody named Scott Hahn called Answering Common Objections Against the Catholic Faith.
1: Couldn't have been the same guy.
0: It, it, it couldn't have been, okay? I knew that it could not be the guy that I mentioned last week that I had met um, a dozen years before then. Yeah, about 1981, now it's about 1993 the the Calvinist Presbyterian that I had met at Fuller Seminary. He and I had become friends, and then we had lost track of each other. I hadn't talked to Scott in ten years, but I'm thinking there's no way that it's the same guy. And the thing that's funny is funny as I look back now is that this gentleman in my church came to me with a problem. But the second he said the words Scott hahn and answering common objection against the Catholic faith, I was the one who had the problem. And I remember I was just sort of looking right through him from that, from that point on. And all I could think was no way this cannot be the the same guy. And so I said, "Um, where are those tapes? And he said, Oh, don't worry, uh, pastor. I'll bring them next week. And I was like, no, where do you live? (laughs) I'm following you to your house. (laughs) I'm following you to your house right now. (laughs) And, um, Poor guy. I, it turns out I was no help to him in his in his um in his situation. But I I followed him to his house, and this is one of those little scenes that it, it seems to me like a scene out of a film somewhere. He goes inside, he gets the set of tapes, he brings them out, and I, I'm standing under a street lamp, and I flip that thing over, and in the light of the street lamp, I see Scott's face on the back of the package, you know, and it's like, like, oh no,
1: it really is the same guy. Oh Scott
0: man, Scott Hahn? answering common objections against the Catholic faith. And hadn't you like like,
1: solved Calvinism with him? Like you guys just like rolled around throwing Frisbees and talking about the amazingness of the institutes of religion by Calvin and like.
0: (laughs) Well, we may as well have done that. But yeah, I mean, he was, he was a Calvinist Presbyterian. I was a Calvinist Baptist, but we were on the same page in terms of so much as I mentioned last week, we were both into what's called biblical theology. We were both reading a lot of the same books. We were both on the same wavelength. And so, but he was kind of, you know, he was pretty radical in his Calvinism. So, so anyway, I get the tapes. I say to the gentleman, good (laughs) night, you know, (laughs) whatever you're, I'll listen and I'll tell you where the Catholics are wrong. Okay. And I got in my car and Matt, I was going insane because I opened the package. It's cassette tapes. And, um, the cassette tape player in my car was broken. So I'm looking at the tapes. Tape number one is called Protestant minister becomes Catholic. This is his conversion story. So I get in my car pedal to the metal. I'm going as fast as, as it, this engine will take me the 20 minute drive home. Okay. Then I went into my house and I went into the family room and I sat down in a rocking chair in the corner and I put on headphones so that Tina wouldn't know what I was listening to. And I put this tape in, you know, so, and I listened to Scott. Okay. About an hour later, I take the tape out. I take the headphones off and Tina says, so what is Scott saying? And I said, Scott's become a Catholic. And I, I remember it, man. She just like looked at me and she goes, you're not gonna become a Catholic too, are you? This is like straight away. Of course, my aunt, I wasn't, there, there was no way. And I said, no, 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 no. But I was definitely in an agitated state mentally, you could say, okay? And I went to bed and I got up in the morning and I hopped in my car, pedal to the metal again. I drove 100 miles an hour back to my church went into my Baptist church where I was the senior pastor. I went into my senior pastor's office. I bolted the door so that no one would come in or knock or anything like that. And I hunted Scott down on the phone. I believe he was teaching at Joliet then um, before he even went to Franciscan. But Matt, here was my state of mind. I was sort of divided in half again not not half pro-Catholic and, and half anti-Catholic. It, it was a different kind of division. Half of my mind was saying, I think I can answer all this stuff that Scott says in his conversion story. All the arguments that he had for becoming Catholic. I, I was thinking, I think I can answer all of them. But then there was this other half of my brain that was saying, it wasn't saying the Catholics are right. The other half was saying to me, Ken, how come you don't know the case for the Catholic faith? How can you have been an evangelical, a Pro, a Reformation, Puritan-type Protestant now for 20 years, almost 20 years, and you don't know the case for the Catholic faith? How come so much of what Scott said in that in his conversion story is new to you? That's what was hitting me.
1: You who have been to Fuller Seminary and graduated, and yeah. this is like you're in third grade CCD class on some of this. Yeah, I, I that experience, I would mock you for it. Except, this was the kind of thing that was happening to me repeatedly, <laughs> right? Uh, as I was going through this discovery mm-hmm. phase, um, it's like, why did, yeah. what, why didn't nobody at least tell me like. They're wrong because this. This is what they believe, and this is why what they believe is wrong. It was like, you know, for me, it was like the way I trained my son to be a Bengals fan and just hate the Steelers because there's the Steelers. There's no argument to be made for why he should dislike the Steelers. I mean, I have yeah, you my need- reasons, but, like, it just is what it is, man.
0: It's common knowledge. Right. Right? It's this basic common sense and common knowledge. Well, yeah, so— that's exactly what I, not about the Bengals, but what I was thinking was, by the way, one of my grandkids said the other day that the the Bumbles had, no, never mind. Forget that part. Cut it out, Seth. That part's useless. No, 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 no. Leave it in. I'm going to defend remember. the
1: early 90s. <laughs> that was the person, that was the, the wandering in the desert and we came into the promised land.
0: I can't remember what I was going to say or I can't we remember what it was. We learned from that experience. Was. Okay. But this is what I was thinking. I went to Bible college and I graduated at the top of my class. I was studying biblical theology, then systematic theology, church history and all that. Then I went to Fuller Seminary. I took pre-doctoral studies in theology. I graduated again. Well, high. I mean, my, my, my GPA was over 9.5 high up. I'm enrolled in a doctoral program and I'm, I'm thinking things like this. I'm thinking you would think that at a, a protestant college or a protestant seminary you would think that they would start by saying okay our worldview is based on something called sola scriptura scripture alone and the right of private judgment let us make the argument for why that is true right now let's lay down the foundation and why the catholic view of there being an authoritative church and all that is wrong but no that never happened I well, you probably got, and,
1: you, you probably got like, here's the Nazarene case, the case for the Church of the Nazarene. Here's the case for the Presbyterian Church. Here's the case for, you probably got I some guess. of those cases, you know.
0: I probably got some of those, but but yeah, it, you know, Sola Scriptura was simply the atmosphere in which we lived. It was like, a, you know, you don't prove that there's oxygen in the air before you can take a breath. You know, you just breathe and you talk. And um, this is the way it was. And then I thought about my church history courses. I thought... What about church history? Because I took a one year course in church history and then I took a, a course that was broken down into patristics, you know, um, Middle Ages and then modern and and also historical theology, patristic theology, um, the theology of the Middle Ages, medieval theology, and then you know so I, I'm racking my brain like where did I learn this stuff? and realizing that I really didn't, even in patristics class, we would start by talking about the rapid growth of Christianity. But then there would be a couple of lectures on the, per, the waves of, 10 waves of persecution that the church endured in the first three centuries of its life. And then you would be talking about the Christological stuff, you know, the Arians and the Christological heresies, the uh, doctrine of the Trinity and whatnot. And um, so, it, yeah, so I'm sitting there thinking, how come I don't know the case for the Catholic faith? So it was mainly a, a, a curiosity that made me call Scott Hahn that day. And oh, I, I still remember, I finally got Scott on the phone and he's like, where I was, Scott, this is Ken. And he was, Ken, this is Scott. And and I'm like, what's going on with you? And we began to talk, and that's where it began. We began to talk, we began to debate a bit, and um, and I'll pick up there next week.
1: That's a good cliffhanger. What you got two Scott Hahn cliffhangers in a row now?
0: Well, that's because so, you forced it out of me last week.
1: I mean, I really did. I really did. Yeah, I'm an interviewer by my very nature, Ken. It's in my bones yeah. to get the get the info out of people. Yeah. It's, it's how I was. It's just how I was raised. So, so but I, I,
0: I, what that um, what that means I'll is pick we got up there next week. Is what happened? Yeah. W- w- where where the conversation led.
1: Yeah, we get to we got to know what Scott said to you. Um, so said, yeah, uh, this is. Hi, Ken. This is Scott Hahn. His beard wasn't as majestic back then, so his voice wasn't probably as deep. But still. I
0: think he had a beard.
1: Yeah, he's still a mustache. I mean, like I say, I, but it's, it's still convinced you, whatever he said. Over time, it did. Um, but we'll get, we get into years. that next episode. Um, yeah, we'll see how long it takes us to tell that story over the next several episodes. But I'm really enjoying this, Ken. I'm, like, loving every second of this. Because, again, I've heard the overview of this story a few times. But we're getting into some levels that uh, that I hadn't heard before. And if you've got a story like Ken's, if you're in the middle of a story like Ken's, and uh, you'd like to commiserate with some people who are having realizations like Ken was having <laughs> in this episode or or just seek community um, and uh, talk with some people who are just trying to seek the face of the Lord together, uh, come visit our online community, community.chnetwork.org. And if you're like Ken was in this moment, which is he was a Baptist pastor trying to figure out what does this mean for my entire life and everything I've built to, to this point, we actually have Coming Home Network retreats and we have scholarships available um, where we'll pay your way if you're a pastor who wants to come sort these out with other pastors who are in these same shoes. So that's chnetwork.org retreats for info on that. Ken Hensley, it's a thrilling ride, and I can't wait till the next round of it.
0: Good to talk with you again, Matt. See you next week.
1: Until then.